Today's show is brought to you in partnership with International Justice Mission. Thank you to Philip Calvert and his team for the incredible work they do to bring awareness to the global problem of modern-day slavery. I'm proud to share with my audience that I formalized my relationship with IGMs for becoming one of their Canadian ambassadors. Why? Because I believe we can end slavery in our lifetime, and I want to use my platform to be part of that mission. For many of you, hearing that statement may be a rallying cry. For the rest, it may be a moment of, wait, what? Slavery? Is that even a thing? For me, up to 12 to 18 months ago, it was the second. I did not even understand the problem or that it existed at the scale that it does. Currently, there are over 40 million people affected by modern-day slavery. 40 million people. After a chance meeting with Philip Calvert, National Director of Development for IGM Canada, my eyes were open to the reality that poor people face the world over, a reality of violence that stops them from ever moving forward in their life. At first, this made me uncomfortable. Then it made me downright mad. But then it gave me hope. It is support of groups like IGM that will allow us to reach the goal of ending slavery in our lifetime and give hope to people who may have none. I know this can be an uncomfortable conversation, and that is okay. That's why we're going to go on this journey together. Stay tuned as we host guests from IGM who will help educate us, as well as upcoming events that, where we can meet the amazing people that make the work they do a reality. Please join me in supporting this incredible organization by visiting and donating to their cause at www.igm.ca. We will only succeed in any slavery in our lifetime if we work together to make a difference. Hello and welcome to Clinton's YYC, Follow the Money, Investing with Purpose, a show where we have real conversations with the people who are driving change in our community. I'm really excited today, and if I think about all my Follow the uh, follow the Money episodes we've had on so far, it's been very locally generated, a lot of our kind of ecosystem and who's doing the investing and who's getting invested in. But I've got an opportunity this morning, which I'm really excited about, to have Bram Klar from, Capital, from Round 13 Capital on the show out of Toronto. How are you doing, Bram? Doing great, Tyler. Thanks so much for having me on. Oh, my absolute pleasure. Looking forward to chatting. We have a common, we have a friend in common, Mr. David Owen Cord, one of the co the co CEO over at Avanti, and I was doing a show with David about their recent round, and your name came up, and he really said, you know what, if you really want to get a fresh perspective or just from outside the ecosystem, and maybe we'll touch on the fact that they, uh, much to my chagrin, just as a supporter of the Calgary market, didn't get as many calls back from potential um, venture partners as they did from the Toronto community. So that's another conversation we'll comment on. Him and I chatted. So if you're curious about that episode. So check out episode number 239 it was aired a few weeks ago with David. Really great, super like transparent and really honest guy and gave us a really good take on it. But before we go any further, let's jump in the old, uh, the, the old elevator pitch elevator. What's Round 13 Capital all about? What do you guys do? And give us a little bit of a, let's set the stage. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So Round 13 is a Toronto-based venture growth fund. Um, we invest almost exclusively in Canadian technology and technology-enabled businesses. Um, and while in many ways we resemble a traditional venture capital fund looking to back, you know, growing businesses, we try and add a couple of nuances to our approach. Uh, one is that we definitely skew towards the more hands-on um, side of the uh, involved equation, and we um, blend sort of operator personalities with investor personalities. So if you look at our team, about half um, come from sort of the operating entrepreneurial side of things, and about half come from the more traditional investing um, backgrounds. I'll, I'll put myself in that second bucket of um, more traditional uh, investing backgrounds. Um, we also try and differentiate ourselves a little bit by um, running a pretty concentrated portfolio. Um, we don't come from the school of trying to generate outsized returns from a small number of investments. Uh, we expect every investment we make uh, to be successful, and we hope to be um, you know, supportive along the way in, in helping uh, get Canadian businesses to, to great outcomes. Um, so at a high level, that's, that's what we do. 
appreciate it. Oh, so, so many things I want to unpack. Just to give context, how big is your team? Like, there's so many ways to look at organizations like yours. It's like, well, the number of companies that we're invested in or number of dollars we've got out there. Often I've seen, like, been always impressed by the amount of impact that an organization like yours can have with often a small headcount. <laughs> Yeah, and, it's, and I think we probably fit that mold as well. We manage about $600 million um, in, in investor assets, and um, we're a team of 10 investment professionals uh, with a support staff of about four to five uh, at any given time, bringing our overall headcount to about 15. Nice. Okay, support staff. And you said like that blend of operators versus, are these operators that maybe you would have engaged with or companies you're like, like, I'm just curious who, who, who makes up the team? Part of the show is also trying to pull back the veil on what's just sure. often industries that if you don't work in them or understand them, it's a little bit, you know, you kind of rely on Hollywood for what the venture world looks like sometimes, or you don't, you don't have a view. Are these individuals that have exited or grown their own organizations and then said, Hey, yeah, I want to get back involved, but maybe not from a full-time operating perspective. Great question. And I think, um, you know, we have a cool story that sort of shows how the VC landscape has evolved okay. uh, over the past number of years. But to answer your question directly, our firm was founded by Bruce Croxton and John Eckert about six years ago. Uh, and Bruce Croxton is a well-known um, Canadian entrepreneur, having built and exited uh, Lava Life um, a few years back and uh, spent some time on, on Dragon's Den and has been a big champion of the Canadian uh, tech community for, for many years. Um, and he teamed up with uh, his investor and, and partner at Lava Life, John Eckert, who's a longtime you know, Canadian VC, having launched one of Canada's first um, tech funds uh, in the 90s and uh, had a number of successful exits and wins. And um, you know, Bruce and John got together uh, around 2016 to, to launch Round 13. And then they've added a number of folks over the years, my, myself included. Um, and then we have um, folks like Craig Strong, who's an operator and consultant by background. Um, we have Sanjeev Samant uh, and Alex Unitsky on our team that drive um, the growth strategy, which is a little bit later stage. They come from sort of finance and investing, investment banking uh, background. Um, we've had an amazing CFO um, in the tech community, Wilson Lee, join our team to help on both the operations and investing side, um, and so a really, um, a really cool mix of folks. And the reason I sort of make the comment that we're a, a model of how VC has evolved, if you looked at, you know, most VC funds in sort of the early and mid-2000s and into the early aughts, you would see a lot of people that looked very much like Bruce which was um, a very successful entrepreneur that you know, had generated some wealth, was looking to contribute back to the community. Um, there was a big aspect of mentorship and, and supporting others uh, in, the, in the original strategy. And it was um, a lot of um, sort of you know, fit and feel and intuition. There was a diligence layer that paired it, but it was a lot of been there, done that, had that mm -hmm. sort of experience. So very heavy on the operator side. And interestingly, I think VC has skewed a little bit more to the investor background as the asset class has matured and a lot more um, AUM has flowed into it. Uh, interesting. Okay. So part of, I saw Bruce's name on there and obviously you can't be involved in the Canadian kind of landscape without having, without knowing that name. 
but clearly they got into it for a way, uh, had some opportunity, you said very much wanted to give back and wanted to contribute. So what I'm hearing, and of course, talk to a lot of different investors on here, like the thesis and what, and as David and I have joked, well, they'll all, t they'll all tell you that they're different. They'll all yeah. tell you that you're unique. <laughs> so from you guys, how much is like, how competitive is it out there? Like, you know, being a marketer, you're always looking for what's the differentiation? Why should I care? What is that value proposition? And everybody believes that theirs is valuable. And obviously we wouldn't be in business if we didn't think that. But when you're out there looking at deal flow, kind of at the space that you're in, we'll talk about like unpacking who are the companies you invest in and who you look for. How competitive is it at the stage? Is it competitors or collaborative? Is it a balance of the two where you guys play specifically? It's a really good question. Um, and it's, it's a little bit nuanced in the sense that, you know, often in VC, uh, VC funded and uh, financing rounds, um, you see multiple VCs uh, participate in a single round of financing. So in many ways, it, it is collaborative, but there, it's certainly competitive because there are uh, rounds where there's a you know, dedicated lead investor. There are some rounds where there's a single investor. Um, and so it, it's definitely um, both competitive and collaborative at the same time. Okay. Uh, and it depends a little bit on, on the stage. You know, later stage investments in Canada typically attract the interest of large U.S. funds, um, while earlier stage investments are typically done by more uh, local funds in the Canadian um, ecosystem, for sure. But just to rip off of a comment you made, too, on sort of differentiation, you know, we are really providing a commodity, which is capital at the end of the day. So there's a lot of work yeah, for okay. us to try and prove, you know, how we're different. I would argue that, um, you know, marketing is much more of a skill offering than, than what we're offering, which is capital. And so, you know, it's, it's really on us to sort of prove our worth and prove that we are differentiated. And I think, you know, what we've tried to do is um, we don't make sort of big, bold claims on um, we're going to change your business or introduce some phenomenal technology or something like that. We, we try and do it by being a sort of hardworking and earnest partner that um, can try and help you recruit and help you scale and help you think through things and trying to do most of the little things right, as opposed to one sort of sweeping, you know, we'll do this for you claim. I really appreciate that. And I love what you said. You just like, let's remember that capital is a commodity and we are at the end of the day delivering a commodity. Gold is also a commodity. It's more coveted yeah. than maybe firewood is also a commodity. Well, that's maybe a bad comparison, but <laughs> yeah, it's interesting when you come right down to it because it's so coveted and maybe it's easy to create this veil or illusion that it's something special, but ultimately it's capital at the end of the day. And there's many different ways I can get it. From a, from a, you know, at the time, the energy and the value it's actually going to contribute to my business or detract if I get the wrong partner because the partner tied to that capital could be the make or break factor of are we are we the right fit, right? I'm, I can only imagine that as qualitative as that sounds, it's incredibly important you guys are in your diligence phase. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I would say that it, it's gotten a lot more competitive over the years. And one of, you know, um, the reasons for Bruce in particular wanting to launch round 13 is um, when he raised money for Lava Life originally, um, there was a very small number of VCs, and um, they, they didn't view it as, you know, a commodity. They viewed it as their blessing was very special, and um, yes. I think, you know, Bruce wanted to sort of flip the table a little bit and say, no, we're going to approach this with a little bit more of a, a humble attitude. You know, we, we offer money and, and some advice, but, you know, you don't have to take our money specifically. Um, and I think more competition has been good for the industry. And certainly at round 13, um, you know, we think folks should, should sort of press us to prove our value and should make us compete to win deals. And so we, we kind of welcome mm. the competition as well. Versus I bestow thee with my capital kind of mindset, right? From coming exactly. down from the, from the ivory tower, which I think is how it's often been portrayed. And if you don't 
play in it. That's the way the media or sometimes it's shown up over the years. And again, sometimes the most things we know about something we learn from a Hollywood portrayal, which is often portrayed that way because it makes for good, makes for good TV. Let's be honest. So round, thir- round 13 adventures and round 13 growth, simply earlier stage versus later stage to just oversimplify. Like I'm looking at your website and looking at those two buckets right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's correct. And our, our growth fund um, looks to catalyze, you know, um, liquidity events and later stage businesses. And there's a really phenomenal sort of capital markets expertise in, in, in that group. So um, they operate a little bit later stage and a little bit uh, shorter duration. And then the core venture fund is sort of a typical five plus year um, holds and, you know, will be involved in multiple rounds of, of financing to get the business okay. to scale. And from a stage that the companies are at, uh, mainly we've got product market fit, we've got customer, we've got revenue, we now need to grow. Like, are we at that stage more closely the A or B or do you guys get in also with venture some of the earlier round? But you said five years, so you're not playing in necessarily that we've got an idea on an napkin phase. <laughs> For sure. And, you know, if there's one sort of uh, overarching theme, I think at round 13, it's we try and be opportunistic. So um, as much as we try and put some borders around what we do, the reality is we'll take a look at most deals in Canada that leverage Mm, technology in some way. That being said, um, we describe ourselves as um, not, we're not product market fit people in the sense that um, if you don't have that, we're probably not the right group to help you figure out product market fit. We fit a little bit better when you have that and you're looking to scale uh, a business that's a cheap product market fit to 5, 10, 20, 50 million uh, in, in revenue. Um, and I okay. think there's a lot of great folks out there that are a little bit more helpful at that sort of seed or pre-seed stage. And we okay. partner with a lot of those folks to help, you know, find deals that come to us, get a home in a earlier, earlier deal. But by and large, you'll see our portfolio is in post product market fit, um, businesses. And in some cases that may mean only 500,000 of, of revenue. In other cases, you may say, you know, I really can't assess that there's product market fit until there's five, 10 million of, of revenue or something. Of like course, that. it's going to be relevant to the business and, and who, who the ideal customer is and, and all the mechanics around it. How many deals would you guys typically see in, in a year? Like what does deal flow? Because do you only invest, like you said the word Canada many times, do you do any investment south of the border? Or is it strictly part of your mandate is Canadian-based companies? We um, have virtually all of our investments in Canada saved for two, and okay. the two investments in the States need to have a Canadian angle. Um, so one okay. has built a, a large uh, engineering division in Toronto, um, and another um, you know, is a sector that we helped you know, sort of build in, in Canada through a port- another portfolio company, so in the D2C space. Um, but, uh, but virtually, um, every except for two, uh, two of the businesses are in Canada. Okay. No, that, that's awesome. I love, I love it. And we'll get into the Calgary story here in a second. I'm working my, sure. I'm, working, I'm slowly working my way from, from East to West. <laughs> how many deals would you got? How many companies under like how many companies in the portfolio right now? So there's 30, which sounds like a big number overall, but I would bifurcate that into, um, smaller investments and larger investments and the okay. larger investments sort of occupy, you know, the, the majority of our, of our sort of time. And in the earlier investments, it may be that we think there's an ability to deploy much 
more capital later on. So of the 30, I'd say about half of those are what we'd call sort of principal investments, which are typically, you know, five to $20 million checks. And the smaller investments would be a little bit less than that. And it sounds like, and again, I'm hearing, putting my own words on this, that you guys are also along for potentially a bit of a longer ride. You're not looking for, oh, we're only going to try to find rocket ships and unicorns and hopefully that works out. It sounds like you are in for like sequential rounds and like we're, we're there for the journey to really kind of get that consistent return for our investors. Is that what I'm hearing? Like saying back to you, is that correct? For sure. And we're believers in a couple of things. One is that, you know, businesses are typically bought as opposed to sold. And, um, <laughs> you know, our, our view is nice. that let's build a great business and that's the best way to um, have a successful exit as opposed to trying to optimize, you know, purely for exit. So, um, you know, we have a hard time saying that a business will, uh, on the venture side anyways, you know, exit at any specific period of time. Um, let's just build it and have a couple of ways to win. And that maybe that takes five years. In some cases, that takes one year. In other cases, it may take 15 years. And so we're, we're kind of open-minded on that. I really like the build. What I heard is it bought versus sold. Build something that someone wants to buy versus something you're trying then to sell. Two very different kind of power dynamics in that, in that situation. For sure. And at the later stage, you know, um, there's, like there's more of a market for liquidity and that, that, that skill set may um, be a little bit different there. But at sort of the core venture stage, we're, we're we definitely have some uh, bought, not sold uh, tattoos uh, across the country. <laughs> I like that. I knew an old insurance guy years ago. He's Tyler. Let's be clear. No one buys insurance from me. I sell it to them. And he, was, and he had, and he said it with some gusto as he swaggered into the room with a Absolutely. kind of a six, six shooter kind of attitude and cowboy boots. How many deals will you guys typically see in a year, kind of ballpark? And hopefully, I'm not getting into the secret sauce here. I'm just really trying to paint no, the picture. <laughs> not at all. And it's um, it's 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 a pretty. Um, it's a pretty tough, you know, funnel. So we'll probably look at in uh, any given year several hundred deals, yeah. um, and that could be three hundred to five hundred, depending on you know the deal flow in any given year. And when I say see, I mean you know it, a, a presentation or a request comes across our desk. Okay. Um, we'll take uh, probably about twenty-five of those deals in any given year and dig in. Um, and that means, you know, spending um, days or weeks trying to really form a perspective on the business. And then in uh, any given year, we'll probably close on one to five of those deals. Um, so it's that, pretty, that is an aggressive funnel. That's a bit, that's yeah. a wide top and a narrow bottom. <laughs> you know, and it's funny too for, for entrepreneurs. I, I, I typically try and describe that funnel and say, you know, whether it's, an investment is a yes or no. Um, when you look at that math, there's so many phenomenal deals that exist in that funnel. That funnel is not a reflection on underlying business quality. That's a reflection on we simply have to make a small number of bets each year, and we simply need to have some sort of process to um, go from a big top of funnel to uh, low to medium-sized mid-level funnel and then execute on a small number of deals in any given year. I really like that perspective. From it, it, it leaves a little bit of hope on the table that hey, just because we're saying no doesn't mean that this isn't a good business. It's just not the right business for our fit, based on our one to five from three hundred kind of ratio. We're only going to make so many bets, so we're going to say way more no's than we're ever going to say yes. And not a fit based on objective criteria, a fit based on subjective criteria. So yeah, at the end of the day, um, yeah. what, we, what we may want to do may be different than someone else, and maybe different than you know um, whoever. <laughs> It's the joy of living in the open market that we live in because there's multiple yeah. options and places to buy or sell your, your wares if you want to kind of pull it right down. I, I was just talking with someone yesterday and they were talking about the phenomenon, what they're seeing coming from some contacts they have in the Valley where it's almost 
it's almost passe to have to ask for money. If your idea isn't so good that people aren't wanting to give you money, you're doing something wrong. And they're like, that's very much, a, in his perspective, a Silicon Valley attitude, not a Calgary or certainly a Canadian attitude. Any any thoughts on that? Well, one guy's perspective, but that's the joy of this podcast. I get to hear these kind of nuances. I'm like, oh, I'm going to dig into that one a little bit. Any thoughts on that of just like even US versus Canada or maybe in Silicon Valley is probably, you can't even, that's not even just the US, that's its own market. <laughs> it's its own place. Yeah, I mean... Look, I, I think there's um, there, there's definitely, I mean, uh, at times some maybe arrogance is the word, and, 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 uh, and confidence, things, abundance confidence. of confidence. That's you know, that's a better substitution. For that word. Um, and, I hear you. Uh, I hear you. And um, look, I think there's plenty of people that are very good at having great instinct around an idea and saying that sounds great. We're going to give you a bunch of money, and it's going to do really well. And you know. Um, the irony to some extent in the venture world is it is a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, if um, Sequoia or A16Z bless your business, then the next big fund is going to bless your business with a much higher likelihood and so on and so forth. And so um, to some extent, that's a perspective that I think is probably a little bit more common to the Valley, and I understand why that exists. I mean, you know, on the Round 13 side, um, we try and start with, you know, curiosity, and I, I noticed that was a theme on, on sort of your, your site as well. 100%. Which is, uh, and we can't, you know, let's, we, we'll have some instinct, but let's ask some questions, let's try and understand it, let's go back, <laughs> let's read a little bit, let's go back and ask a few more questions. And so we like to kind of refine um, our view over time as opposed to relying on the first one that necessarily pops into our head. May very well be right, I, I you know, um, probably sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. But broader point being that um, I think we're probably, at least at Round 13, and I think more so in the Canadian ecosystem, do try and sort of really understand what's in front of us and say, hey, is this something um, that makes sense on a variety of levels other than it seems great on a napkin? <laughs> Which I, I I appreciate sound diligence and and, and, and a linear <laughs> step-by-step process. So talk to me a little bit about what you're seeing uh, – Storm clouds on the horizon, funding drying up, getting some constraints. I'm hearing that from a few people I'm talking to. And then also your perspective. You're in Toronto. I'm in Calgary. Most of these conversations, and you, we got connected through an investment you made into a Calgary-based into a Calgary-based company, who I know through through direct from the CEO didn't get a lot of feedback from Calgary investors. So curious what you're seeing kind of overall in the venture space, but also your view of Calgary from somebody sitting in Toronto who's recently made an investment here. For sure. Um- so to start off with the market in general, um, and you know, I'll say this with the benefit of hindsight, um, <laughs> the last you know really two years seemed sort of crazy to us from a valuation perspective. Okay. Um, and you'll see at the Round 13 portfolio that you know we made very few software investments over the last 18 months outside of businesses that we already had a deep understanding and uh, ownership position in. And so if you look at some of the key um, indices in the, the venture world, like the Bessemer Cloud Index, you know, that, you know, the median forward revenue multiple in that index for most of the pre-COVID era was in the five to eight times range. And, you know, sort of in end of H1 2020 and then up from there, you saw that go to 20 to 25 times. And so um, there was some exuberance in the market. Um, there was a lot of capital. There was um, a lot of perspective that, you know, things are only going up. Um, you know, we didn't, we didn't share that perspective and said, hey, we, we love software, we love technology, um, but, you know, we represent investors and we have an obligation to generate 
a good return for them. And so we need to think about the risk reward of, of some of these prices. And so I think there's a lot of um, great businesses that got funded and, you know, will do well over the last year, but the valuations are, are very sort of tough to grow into or at minimum will take quite some time to grow into. So if you look at any graph, it kind of shows a relatively, you know, range bound sort of five day times, which shot up to 20 to 25 and now it's corrected back down to five to eight. And so we kind of look back and again with the benefit of hindsight and say, um, you know, that was probably some exuberance and there was a variety of reasons ranging from um, low rates to significant dry powder where that, um, you know, it made sense that that, that happened. Um, but I think we'll probably view that as a blip on the radar in the longer term view. There'll be some impacts um, of that, meaning that down rounds or, you know, potentially layoffs as we're starting to see with some companies. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I think that's, that's you know, uh, unfortunate, but I think we'll find a way to find great homes for those folks and support them elsewhere in the Canadian community. But, um, you know, th that, that's sort of the lasting effect that I think we'll, we'll see from, from this in the last couple of years yeah getting get the, the risk of getting drunk on that valuation that now you ha you you ha you can have no chance or maybe opportunity to live up to and how that really sets sets you back on your heels for any future growth of the organization <laughs> for sure and and then uh, to your sort of second question on um, perspectives on sort of the the Calgary um, you know ecosystem Calgary or Western yeah. Canada I love to focus on Calgary but we don't live in a in a in a, in a dome or on an island so yeah Western sure. Canada in general but yeah of course Calgary I can see downtown out my window so it's Perfect. close to my it's close to my heart <laughs> awesome yeah and, and look um, we we love um, investments in Western Canada and we have um, our largest investment is actually based in Vancouver article furniture Okay. Um, and we have uh, another large investment in Winnipeg, Bold Commerce. Um, and then um, Avanti was our largest software investment or new software investment of, of really the last year and a half um, based, uh, based in your backyard of, of Calgary. And so, um, you know, we, we definitely look for deals um, in Western Canada. We think there's some phenomenal businesses that come out of Western Canada. Um, and that's, you know, really... Um, runs the spectrum of sort of really deep tech um, uh, technology and software businesses. Some of the world's leading uh, AI researchers come from the University of Alberta. Uh, and then also on the West Coast um, with, with Vancouver, which has been a, uh, a birthplace of some of the most iconic consumer brands of the last, you know, X number of years um, with, you know, Lululemon and Aritzia uh, and certainly in our view, Article Furniture. Um, and so uh, we think there's sort of phenomenal um, opportunity in, in Western Canada. <clears throat> that being said, it is, it is a smaller market um, than Toronto for, for deals. It's one that I think is um, supported by some local VCs, but um, probably would benefit from some more dollars uh, in the community. I think um, you're seeing, you know, there's certainly been large U.S. funds that have made big investments uh, in, in Calgary businesses like, um, like Benevity. Mm -hmm. Um, and so some, some great stories for sure. Um, but, um, you know, look, I think Calgary and Western Canada broadly hit above their weight, but still some runway ahead of them for, to grow and continue to incubate great businesses. Mm, I, I appreciate that. It's, we're a smaller market and we're kind of new in diversifying out of our energy and our ag history. Like that's just simple math sometimes when you put it. Like someone said to me the other day, we're, well, we're kind of 10 years late to a 20-year plan. I was like, ah, well, it's kind of that old joke. Like when's the best time to plant a tree? Well, t well 20 years ago. But if, if you missed it, then just plant it today. <laughs> get, get, For sure. Get, get it going. And, 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 any, I, 
Uh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I was just going to say, I, I, I'm really bullish about the indicators, though, what okay. I'm seeing. And, and, you know, my view is it doesn't make sense for Calgary to try and compete head-to-head with Toronto or Silicon Valley. And we have the exact same dynamics with our, you know, Canadian software businesses going against their well-funded U.S. competitors. And our guidance is typically don't get into, you know, a dollar-for-dollar sort of spending war on acquiring customers, it's simply uh, a really tough dynamic um, to win in. And, but the leading indicators that I'm seeing, which are really positive, are some great sort of specialization and you know innovation okay. hubs being built, um, and again, some phenomenal AI and ML talent coming out of um, Alberta. Um, and I think that's a dimension where you know uh, Alberta can compete and win um, globally. Um, you know, in Western Canada and Vancouver, some phenomenal incubation of, of great brands, and I think there's a global reputation for that. Um, and then I think in terms of this more distributed workforces, you know, quality of life is a, is a great way to attract talent. And there's this argument that does, you know, every great business have to be headquartered in the region? No, but you can spin up some amazing sort of satellite offices as well. And an interesting case study in my mind is, um, sort of Denver in the U.S., which has emerged as a great tech hub. Is every major software company headquartered? No, but are you seeing in Denver? But are you mm-hmm. seeing a large number of phenomenal second offices in Denver or Austin, being another great example in the states? Uh, you definitely are. I really appreciate that. Like Denver being a like sister city and like a lot of similarities to the quality of life. And one of our clients here on my, my other day job as yeah. running the marketing company, we work with a large home builder here in Alberta. And so many of our leads are coming out of Toronto. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. Like, like significant or like a group's coming in while well, we want to buy four or five lots or like just buying because the dollar is, it's basically going double. They're doubling their dollar here. Like, you know, their million dollar condo is getting them a a significant home with a yard and the whole nine yards, 20 minutes from downtown in Calgary. And that, like that simple math of, you know, back to quality of life, it's a pretty good foundation when you can maybe feel more of an affordability and matrix of, of, of the why. And we do have the mountains. Like I'm going to pitch it. They're 40 minutes away. People. It's amazing. <laughs> as a, as a skier, I can tell you that that resonates deeply for sure. But I think what you've described what, at a perspective, I agree with immensely is there's sort of a barbell approach here, right? Which is, mm. Um, there can be um, some incredibly innovative companies headquartered in Calgary that leverage some expertise of the region. And then it can be a little bit more of a generalist sort of tech model, which is, you know, we're a great place for tech talent to live and raise a family and have a phenomenal quality of life and, uh, and things like that, though the parent company may not be headquartered in, in Calgary or the Alberta area. I do appreciate the last couple of years for just um, maybe igniting for everyone, not just certain groups of what is possible when it comes to where people can live and where work sure. can get done and quality. And that, you know, seeing the whites of your eyes doesn't always translate to value. If we actually measure value, you can be anywhere. It doesn't matter. Absolutely. And, and, there, and all my friends that have been in tech, they're like, well, welcome to the way we've lived for the last 10 years. Glad you all caught up. Kind of, <laughs> kind of, kind of joke. <laughs> um, hey, just you touched on it a little bit. And obviously you guys play in the technology space. And, and, and I think sometimes the, one of the most amazing secrets in Alberta is our AI and ML and some of the amazing things that are going on in Edmonton and Google DeepMind. I, until you peel back those layers, again, you don't know uh, that it's even happening here. When you look at you know investing in companies that are primarily technology-based, obviously, is there certain technologies like just broad-based that you're seeing that are starting to maybe get out of sci-fi and buzzword to actually starting to land to be unique, like actual value-based business models? You know, AI being a great acronym to throw around, but sometimes you struggle to find real instances where the value is being created. But I think that's starting to shift. So curious of what you're seeing and what gets you excited about technology that's actually starting to touch down. 
Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting topic and I'll, I'll give a little bit of sort of RAM13's recent investment strategy in this, but our view is that delivering value to the end customer is the ultimate goal and the, the thing that we measure the most when we look for investments. And so um, we struggled with some of the early, more generalist AI ML solutions that um, had phenomenal talent, but have not perfectly figured out how they're going to deliver um, value to their, their customers in a repeatable and usable and sort of scalable way. And so um, we recently made uh, an investment in an AI ML business called Mars in the visual effects space, Monsters, Aliens, Robots, and Zombies. I think I saw uh, which, that other in your ear press. Really, I've read that somewhere as I was, I was yeah. sifting through. The name definitely caught my attention. I love so, it. Uh, yeah, and, and, and just so you know, they use the full name in their email address. Um, <laughs> but it's a, it's a phenomenal business based out of um, Toronto, and their approach was today AI and ML solutions cannot do 100% of what's done in the VFX world. And so we're going to pair a uh, market-leading core VFX studio with great AI ML talent, and we're going to optimize over time to deliver um, a tech-enabled or AI ML-supported offering to the product. So blending both mm -hmm. traditional artist services with technology. And that to us is the perfect example of how you win and scale um, in, an, in an AI ML world or a D-Tech world, for example, which is you know, if you don't have perfect product market fit or you don't have a solution that can do exactly what is needed for the customer, Mars started off by saying, you know, we need to deliver what the customer wants first and foremost. And, you know, we will do that with technology um, when we can, but if it's not 100% perfect, we're, we're not compromising on delivering 100% perfect to the, to the, the customer. For so, the sake of saying you used 100% of the technology versus it, getting the outcome. I like that a lot. It, exactly right. And so in the last year, we've actually spent a lot of time investing in more legacy businesses to help them deploy software into their current base of customers, not in a zero to okay. one, um, you know, we didn't use any software, now we're purely using software, but saying, is there a way to start increasing the use of software and technology in our business more and more and more? Um, and, and Mars is an example that, you know, two others in our portfolio, um, Trade Cafe and Real Service, operated on a similar theme, you know, large established businesses that are really disrupting their own model um, from inside um, in, in many ways. And so um, a, a long-winded way of saying that our ultimate test is can you deliver something that the customer is extremely happy with? Um, and in, in, until you, you do that, you know, um, we're, we're a little bit more skeptical on, on the offering. I do really appreciate that. And I've, you know, read there's lots of theories out there around different industries being the energy sector being one of like a wholesale, let's do it brand new net net new is almost a great, it's a me it's a great headline, but it's almost not realistic where you take a large established business that knows how to do a lot of good things and you either digitally enable or digitally transform certain aspects of your business. The odds of getting to sustainable change that impacts customers positively is is actually way higher than, oh, we're just gonna start from scratch and build a whole new way of doing it. It sounds great as a headline, but it's not very, it, it, you see it fail more than you see it succeed. Or you see an overfunding and then, oh, that idea didn't really pan out. <laughs> Absolutely, and look, and I'll say this, this is you know, just our perspective. You know, mm -hmm. The world needs great innovation and we need people thinking about you know, what the change the world you know, sort of yep. approach is. Um, but for our sweet spot of um, investing, you know, you know, 
delivering sort of the end customer is, is, is definitely what we optimize for. And, you know, a really interesting sort of case study too, we, we're spending a lot of time in sustainability um, to the comment you just made is, um, you know, uh, how you sort of push, um, you know, sustainability uh, initiatives. And so uh, a really successful sort of hedge fund in the States, um, you know, Value Act, one of their partners, sort of said, hey, sustainability is, is my um, big priority, but I'm going to do it by taking activist positions in big oil as opposed to saying mm -hmm. I'm going to yeah. donate all my money to delivering a, a carbon capture device. And I think both need to happen. Um, yes, but, I agree with you. But, you know, it's, it's, um, it, there's a couple of different ways to, to win here. I read an article specifically written by a leading oil and gas CEO, and he said, you know, it's not transition, it's more about transformation. And he goes, yep. no one better to transform than us because we've been doing this for the longest, and trust me, we're committed to it. It was a really interesting position as he was kind of coming out against the rhetoric, but at the same time going, we're embracing this transformation, and yes, we know it, and we're doing it. <laughs> and, you know, we don't really know what 2050 energy is going to look like, but we know it needs to be abundant, and the world needs to have access. Yep. I just appreciated his perspective of stop with this, leaving something behind, let's transform form what we have because it's not as bad as you think and we can make it a heck of a lot better. I just really appreciated the position he took around it with a little bit of, there was a little bit of F you in there. I could tell he was a yeah. little bit frustrated, but I get it. The energy sector has got a couple black eyes and they're slowly starting to retell their story and that's only up to them to do that. <laughs> that's Which is another podcast for another day. <laughs> Um, hey, curious, I'm in Calgary. I'm listening to this. I love walking away with some tangible stuff. I think you and David maybe knew each other. He reached out. You guys were able to come together and do it. I do a deal. And again, I really encourage people to listen to that episode. David really gets into the nuts and bolts of it with Avanti. And you know, knowing I also know that business, a really solid business. If I'm in Calgary and I'm looking to get in front of someone like you, do I pick up the phone? Do I just, do I network? Do I hit you up on LinkedIn? Like sometimes it is just like, you know, shaking hands and, 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 and meeting people when you're not necessarily needing the money yet. I've always heard that, you know, always, always look for it and build the relationships before you, before you're in dire need. For sure. And I think, um, I, I completely agree with all, all your comments and, and I think, you know, LinkedIn, um, email, whatever uh, is best. And, you know, we try and make our information pretty available online for anybody that's interested in, in hitting us up. I think there's also, um, I encourage people, there's nothing wrong with that sort of 15, 30 minute, here's what we're doing, I'm just going to get on your radar. And the reality is, is that we, um, you know, we, we see a lot and we do our best to prioritize, but we're imperfect at it. So the, what I, you know, personally really appreciate is, um, I'm going to give you a quick update, here's what I'm up to, here's my rough metrics, and, um, you know, I'm going to give you a shout back and we have a great sort of, 15 to 30 minute conversation and then we catch up again and, and there, there's good momentum that happens from these short, pretty regular sort of check-ins and I find that fits the internal process of um, a lot of VCs okay. quite well. Um, you know, sometimes we uh, dig in a lot to a business that is an imperfect fit early on and then the likelihood of us kind of revisiting it when it is a much better fit is a little bit lower because we referenced sort of the time that we invested earlier and said, hey, it wasn't a perfect fit for, for these reasons. Not to say that we don't, you know, get it of right course. sometimes yep. and yep. Uh, reinvest down the road, but building these touch points, building the relationship, and look, this is all about partnership and fit at the end of the day and finding both for you, and I think Dave, you know, really alluded to this in, in his podcast, is you need to find people that you like and you fit with and you can work well with. And so having those sort of 30-minute get-to-know-you conversations, I think, make a, make a ton of sense. And, um, you know, it's with Avanti for us, um, that, that was, 
that was a business that we uh, tried to invest in for a very long time. Oh, nice. Um, so I love that it. was definitely us calling them, um, you know, quite, quite often. And um, just to give a quick comment on our experience with David, I mean, you know, it's funny, sometimes we um, uh, make the diligence process quite complicated and thorough, and we certainly checked our boxes with the uh, Avanti team. But that's the example of taking the two smartest uh, and, and nicest guys, you know, and begging them to take your money. And, uh, and that was definitely- the, <laughs> I know both those case. individuals and yeah, <laughs> and meeting you now, I'm like, oh, I like, I'm, you guys probably, it feels like you, 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 you know, you guys are cut from a similar cloth for sure. Nice guys who really know what they're doing and can get you done. That's a nice combination, isn't it? When you get those- yeah. <laughs> The, the, uh, that's what we strive for, I think. But yes, um, no, no kidding. Life, you don't, you, you, you don't, you don't have to like the people you work with, but why wouldn't you? It just goes so much better. I said to a buddy of mine who just had an exit and sold his company, did well, and we we're talking about something, and I was like, oh, I guess you, I made some comment about you know you don't have to only invest in things you're passionate. And he's like, but at this point in my life, why wouldn't I? I was like, what a really nice answer to that to that statement. Uh, that absolutely. I made. <laughs> and look, why, you know, why the hell wouldn't I, Tyler? That's all I've got left is things I'm passionate about. It's amazing. <laughs> absolutely. And look, it's an interesting dynamic too in in the venture world, which is we don't control the business, you know, and Avanti is, is mm. an example where we're, we don't, you know, we don't control that business. There's a lot of other shareholders and the founders personally have really invested in their business. So, you know, we have to earn the right to, um, you know, contribute and, and, and share our perspectives and, and all that. And so if you start off with, you know, great people and there's, you know, kind of good mutual respect and um, couldn't possibly have more respect for for those two guys, it's a great example of how, regardless of whatever the legal documents say, um, there's a good, you know, sort of working relationship, and that's what you really need to find in venture. And that's both true of entrepreneur and VC fund, because you know, my view is that if you ever get to the stage where you're pointing to sections in the legal documents, you know, it's it's a problem. Um, and 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 um, and so we really try and optimize for that fit piece. And I really encourage, um, as Dave did as well, you know, entrepreneurs to do the same. Ram, I love the humility in the statement. You have to earn the right. And that's such a, there's so much power in that. A little, little bit of humility goes a long way. By the time you're pointing to clause like 3.4 in the agreement, <laughs> things are already screwed, right? <laughs> like you're, it's far past. This is no longer, this stopped working a long time ago by the time we're down to that factor. But uh, finding the right partners and oh, it's just a rule of the, the, the things my mom told me, hang out with the right people, go to bed early. They're all true. It's all true. I'm, you know, now I'm all these years later, it was she was right on all those things. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Ram, what's the best way? You mentioned LinkedIn. You obviously have, guys, your website is simple. It's clear. It's easy to get around, which I, as a marketer, I really appreciate. You make it easy to learn about you, round13.com. If somebody just is listening to this and they're inspired or they, or they want to start the 15-minute relationship with you, what's the best way for them to, to connect and, and reach out? Mm. Yeah, LinkedIn's great or hit me up directly over email. It's Bram, B-R-A-H-M at round13, R-O-U-N-D, 13.com. And um, we'll do my best to get back to you as uh, quickly as possible. Appreciate that. Bram, thanks so much for coming on the show today. I learned a ton and really enjoyed getting to know you guys. Thanks so much. Yeah, pleasure, Tyler. Great show and thanks so much for having me.